technically Sean does have brain damage, and that's the cause of the post-concussive syndrome. With Sean's current neurological status, any additional blows to the head could be life-threatening. You know what? It seems to be people been dodging me around here lately. I don't dodge anybody. So this is the way it's going to be, huh? It's got to be. It has to be. It must be easy for you to sit there. But for me, to respond to a question like that, This is not a job. This is my livelihood. This is my life. This means more to me than just about anything I could ever possibly dream of. It's all the same to you. I'm, I'm not going to dignify that question with response. Bob Bammer and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. We're going back in the time machine to December of 1995 for volume two of this month's show. You've got six volumes uh, this month uh, in order. It's WCW, WWF, ECW, UFC, the end of year review show and the end of year awards. So you've got plenty of audio to get yourself through. We're here in uh, volume two for WWF. I'm being joined by Chris White. Chris, hello. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm very well. And Craig Wilson. Seasons greetings, or should that be seasons beatings? Thank you, Craig. Uh, Craig, kick us off with the news. It seems that the WWF have changed course when it comes to the, viol- to the levels of violence on their programming. Bret Hart and the British Bulldog wrestled in the main event of In Your House 5, which included a spot where Bret bladed. Earlier in the show, Jeff Jarrett and Ahmed Johnson had quite a violent brawl, which included Jarrett hitting him multiple times with a steel chair. And 24 hours later on Nitro, Hulk Hogan went nuts wielding a steel chair. It would be folly to think that this was a coincidence. Outside of Brett retaining his title against Bulldog, In Your House 5 was a fairly uneventful show, but still one of the company's better offerings in 1995. Jeff Jarrett returned after departing in July, attacking Ahmed Johnson after he had defeated Buddy Landell. There were also wins for Razor Ramon and Marty Jannetty, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Owen Hart by DQ over Diesel and The Undertaker. The show closed with The Undertaker and Diesel having a standoff. Undertaker will face Brett Hart for the WWF title at the Royal Rumble. The WWF got as far as sending the Ultimate Warrior a plane ticket and even mentioning him by name on Superstars, but all of that is on hold. Both parties are talking and the company wanted to fly him in to shoot some interviews ahead of a return in time for the Royal Rumble. It is believed talks are ongoing with a decent chance of him coming in, but after the pre-recorded comments on Superstars, he wasn't mentioned again on television. And some people in the locker room are questioning the motivation, given how much the Warrior would cost, his attitude, and also whether he could pass WWF's new stringent drug testing policies. Now former WWF Women's Champion Alundra Blaze, aka Deborah Michelli, turned up on WCW Nitro, Monday Nitro and then dropped the belt into a bin live on television. Her contract expired on December 13th, with the company opting not to review it before telling All Japan that they were cancelling the match between Blaze and Arja Kong for, at the Royal Rumble. Clearly though, nobody bothered to get the belt back off her. She appeared on Nitro five days later saying, this is where the big girls play and is now going by the name Medusa. We have covered this story in detail on the WCW volume this month. 
Shane Douglas is reportedly on the way out of the company with stories about him being done, although his contract may not formally expire until February, amongst other issues recently, including him coughing up blood at In Your House 4. Douglas has been diagnosed with fractured vertebrae and a bulging disc. That hasn't stopped some questioning his motives, with Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon confronting him backstage, believing he was faking the injury at an MSG house show so that his character had the reason for losing to Ramon. And Douglas is scheduled to face Amy Johnson at at the pay-per-view, but instead he introduced his graduate student, Ric Flair knockoff Buddy Landell. The company have contacted a number of names about appearing in the Royal Rumble next month, including Vader, Terry Funk, and Ultimate Fighter Dan Seven. Funk has already said no, and Seven's participation seems unlikely given his recent success in the UFC, which you can listen to in Volume 4 of this month's show. Vader could also appear, but is scheduled for surgery on his shoulder, so that does seem unlikely also. Two names that are likely to appear are Jake the Snake Roberts and Rick Martell. December 9th saw the conclusion of a 17-day house show loop, the longest for the company this year. After winning the title back, Bret Hart was actually booed during many of the dates to fend against The Undertaker. This forced them to change the finish in some markets. And further still was reports of Diesel getting cheered when attacking Bret after the matches had concluded. Vince McMahon did an interview this month touching on a number of topics. He said that he wouldn't mind being the first to blink when it came to potentially moving the time slot of Raw to another evening if it benefited wrestling fans. He was asked about whether WWF would get more hardcore in 1996 and he said, it depends on what you mean by hardcore, there is likely to be a bit more a bit more of an aggressive style. He also said that, that WWF's new website would be live around WrestleMania season, no doubt to be copied, however, by an inferior wrestling organisation coupled with an inferior online service. The WWF received a number of complaints following the Survivor Series main event last month regarding usage of chairs and diesel swearing after the match. It said the company want a rougher product but don't want to alienate sponsors. And finally, after losing out on the ECW title, Steve Austin then debuted at TV taping this month as the ringmaster, managed by Ted DiBiase. Well done, boys, for I think the longest ever news segment we've ever done. Uh, we're actually going to strap a bit more onto that as well, with uh, me introducing a new segment uh, looking at the ratings uh, from each month. But we are going to end up essentially doing this on every, the same bit on WCW and WWF, so you probably would have heard this twice already. Uh, but November the 27th saw Raw post a 2.4 against Nitro's 2.3. Uh, December 4th saw Nitro post a 2.6, headlined by Randy Savage against Lex Luger over Raw's 2.4. December 11th, uh, Nitro posted a 2.6 against Raw's 2.5. December 18th, Nitro posted a 2.7 against 2.4, which was the night uh, WWF were coming off of their pay-per-view. And on Christmas Day, there was no Raw episode, at least not in the United States. We're going we're gonna to review what aired over here. Um, and we don't have the number for Nitro yet, so we'll, we'll cover that in January. Uh, one thing that WCW have moved in their favour is the use of an overrun. Every Nitro this month has been almost an hour, even if you take out commercial breaks. They're running well into, you know, into the 10 o'clock hour anyway. Uh, on December the 4th, they picked up a .2 hike in the overrun, which was enough to tip the ratings in their favour. Shawn Michaels collapsed to the canvas, and we later found out Shawn was suffering from post-concussion syndrome. In the United States annually, there's about 4 million patients that suffer from some type of head trauma. As a result of the head trauma, about half these patients develop a syndrome, which includes problems such as uh, ringing the ears, nausea, vomiting, headache, blurred vision, 
uh, different problems such as uh, numbness in their hands and feet, forgetfulness, inability to concentrate. Uh, they, they can lose their direction. And uh, this becomes a problem because these patients tend to get frustrated. They get uh, depressed as well. They have sleep disturbances. And all this uh, persists for between uh, two weeks to several months. However, there's a group of patients that may go up to three years before they show any improvement. And these patients usually have a very poor prognosis and they don't seem to get better at all. I asked the doctor about Sean's current test results. Sean's current neurological tests are abnormal, and I believe that he might be out considerably longer than I expected. Any uh, indication of having Sean return at this time to the WWF are just totally uh, premature. I then asked the doctor when we could expect to see Sean Michaels back in action. I'm not sure when Sean's going to come back. I do know that there are many professional football players and boxers that never fully recover from these type of head injuries. With Sean, the problem is that he is such a high-impact uh, type of uh, athlete that I would have to be 100% certain that he would not re-injure himself when he got back into the ring. Sean's wrestling career is absolutely insignificant to me. I am concerned about Sean as a human being. Technically, Sean does have brain damage, and that's the cause of the post-concussive syndrome. With Sean's current neurological status, any additional blows to the head could be life-threatening. We open up Raw on December 4th with a competitive and decent match between the British Bulldog and Bob Holly. Bulldog wins clean with a running power slam. We cut to Superstars from the 2nd of December. We see Bob Backlund put the cross-face chicken wing on Jim Ross. Back on Raw, Laura interviews Backlund in the crowd. Backlund says he's had dreams of being God again. He's not happy about his match with Bret Hart next week being a non-title match. Backlund rants for so long, we go to a commercial break. We let a cut to Bob Backlund by the sound booth. Backlund, unhappy at his mic being cut, puts the sound engineer in a chicken wing. Razor Ramon defeats Dean Douglas with the Razor's Edge in a good Raw match. Another painful segment with Brother Love, this time with King Mabel. Brother Love unveils the double-wide, double-deep casket that Mabel Undertaker will face off, face off in at in your house. The casket is being pushed out by a druid, who turns out to be Sir Moe. They're graffitied all over the casket. They're advertising the Raw Bowl for January 1st. The 1-2-3 kid interferes in the main event between Sid and Marty Jannetty. Razor makes the saves and clears house before chasing the kid deep into the crowd. Back in the ring, Sid powerbonds Jannetty for good measure. We get comments from Shawn Michaels' doctor. He recounts watching Shawn collapse on Raw. He says Shawn may not ever return to the ring. They fill in clips of Shawn's year before turning in a bizarre montage of Vincent Mann attempting to humanise his top stars, saying we tend to put them on a pedestal. Owen Hart defeats Jeff Hardy on the December 11th Raw. Diana Smith was sat in the crowd for that match. After the match, Yokozuna does the bonsai drop on Hardy. Owen Hart puts the sharpshooter on him, outruns Diesel and runs off Owen before showing some electric offence to deal with Yokozuna. He showed more speed and fire here than in his entire time he was champion and also suggested that him against Yokozuna may not have been the snooze fest that we perhaps first thought. Arja Kong faces Chaparita Asari. Kong dominates and twice pulls out the pin attempt. Asari misses the corkscrew moonsault. Kong hits her discus chop and that's enough for the win. Shawn Michaels sits down with Todd Pettengill, presumably the company thought he hadn't suffered enough already. Shawn thanks the fans for their response. He says he still has some goals left to achieve in his career and wants to see those goals through. Shawn tears up when Pettengill brings up the possibility of retirement and is offended that Pettengill would even ask. Ahmed Johnson cuts the promo after winning a squash. He says he isn't scared of Dean Douglas. In fact, he wants to know where Douglas even is. 
Doc Hendricks is shilling WWF denim jackets for just $60. You can buy either the Sean jacket, the Brett jacket, the Undertaker jacket, or the Diesel jacket. We get an in-ring interview with Ted DiBiase, Sid, and the kid. The kid isn't worried about the fans anymore. He's just focused on himself and money. Sid says they are family. During the main event of Bret Hart versus Bob Backlund, we join Jerry Lawler in the crowd with Diana Smith. Bret and Backlund have an old-school type match, with Backlund dominating the middle stages with a lot of groundwork. Bulldog distracts Bret, Backlund puts Bret in the chicken wing, and Bulldog unloads on him. It takes a number of officials to get Backlund off of Hart. The charismatic, the flamboyant, the one and only heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. Man, this is so this is so cool. Thank, Thank you, you for doing much, this. Thank you very much, Todd. Sounds to me like you... Uh... I've been reading my press and believing it, too, which which is not bad. It's what I do, so by all means, continue. <laughs> all right, Sean, let me get right into it and ask you certainly a question that all the fans of the World Wrestling Federation want me to ask you, and that's how you're doing physically. The outpouring, their concern has been unbelievable, really overwhelming. Since you collapsed in the ring on Raw, everybody wants to know just one thing. And I guess I want to hear it from your lips. How are you feeling physically? Well, Todd, first of all, I would like to take this opportunity to tell the fans of the World Wrestling Federation, thank you. Thank you very much for for their outpouring of concern for me. Um, the response from the fans of the World Wrestling Federation has been uh, has been unbelievable. And I want them all to know that uh, Shawn Michaels is a man, is a person, is a superstar. However it is you look at him, it means a great deal to him. Thank you very much. How about physically, Shawn, your condition? How are you? I think I'm okay. Uh, I'm not suffering from any of the uh, many of these symptoms that uh, my doctors and everyone else claims that I have. Um, I haven't had any dizziness or any blackouts uh, lately, right. and uh, so to me, I feel fine. Well, would it surprise you to know that a lot of people are talking about you out there? No, about <laughs> me. I'm talking about the locker rooms, the internet. I mean, all over the place. The innuendo, the speculation. Let's not deal with it specifically. Let's just center on one thing. When are you coming back? That's what everybody wants to know. When is Shawn Michaels going to return? Well, as far as I'm concerned, I would return today. But uh, there are some doctors and some people in higher places that don't uh, that don't agree with me, which is which is not uncommon for me. So it's just a matter of me doing what I always do, and that's ignoring all the authority and just doing what I want to do. So right. Uh, before long, I hope to be back in the ring very soon. You know, you, you said I was reading your own press and believing it, but seriously, I mean, it's got to be cool to be you. Huh. Intercontinental <laughs> champion a number of times, tag team champion a number of times. I mean, you weren't WWF champion, but, I mean, you've had an awesome career. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have. There, uh, there are some goals uh, left to be attained by Shawn Michaels. Everyone knows what those goals are. And... Uh, if it's all the same to everyone else, I'd like to stick around and, and see those goals through. Well, that being said, isn't, isn't that kind of in jeopardy? I mean, with the information that your doctor has given us about your physical condition, I mean, you've got to be facing what every athlete faces at some point in their career, you know, and that being possible retirement. Is, is, is that what all this is for? Is that what all this is about? The lights, the camera. It's it's not about your concern for me, obviously. It's, it's about you getting my reaction to that question on your camera, isn't it? 
must be easy for you to sit there. But for me, to respond to a question like that, this is not a job. This is my livelihood. This is my life. This means more to me than just about anything I could ever possibly dream of. It's all the same to you. I'm, I'm not going to dignify that question with response. And we will jump into In Your House 5. Craig, you can kick us off with the results. Certainly. Uh, in the dark match, uh, Savio Vega defeated Bob Backlund. On the main show, Razor Ramon and Marty Gennetti defeated the team of the 1-2-3 Kid and Psycho Sid with Ted DiBiase in their corner in just over 12 minutes. Ahmed Johnson then defeated Buddy Landell, who was subbing for Dean Douglas in 45 seconds. Hunter Hearst Helmsley defeated Henry O. Godwin in an Arkansas Hogpen match with Hillbilly Jim as the special guest referee. The the victor was the first man to toss his opponent into the Hogpen. Then Owen Hart with Jim Cornette defeated Diesel by disqualification in just under five minutes. The Undertaker with Paul Bearer bested King Mabel with Sir Moe in a casket match in just over six minutes. And in the main event and longest match of the show, Bret Hart retained his WWF title against the British Bulldog in 21 minutes via pinfall and after the, the main event there was two uh, further dark matches, Goldust defeating Duke the Dumpster Drosy and the Smoking Guns, Hakushi and Barry Horowitz defeating the Body Donnas, Yokozuna and Isaac Yankum DDS And perhaps the more important note but other than the dark matches closing the show was the final segment on the pay-per-view uh, where we had a standoff backstage between Diesel and The Undertaker Chris what do you think of this show? I it was a very mixed show. There was um some very missable parts, very forgettable parts, but the main event was largely outstanding. Um but as good as that was, there was also a few matches that were just quite frankly terrible. The Undertaker match, there's no, but he Undertaker and Mabel, I mean they've been paired together before. There's only so much we can you can get out of those two working together and having had the pairing before six minutes felt like a drag. It was, it was such a, it was, it was just a drag to sit through. It really wasn't enjoyable at all, but generally I enjoyed the show. Um, there were a few, like the, uh, Arkansas hog pen match, the gimmick being slightly ridiculous, but generally it was quite fun. It was enjoyable to watch. Um, so it was a positive show for me. It was one of the better WWF shows I've seen this year. Um, but, it wasn't stellar by any means. Craig? You could probably just get away with watching the first match and the last match and leaving the rest. Uh, I appreciate Chris is quite fond of the, the Hogpen match, but I just thought it was a little bit bit too cookie uh, and just a little bit obvious, uh, I guess. But the opening match I thought was really good, uh, except maybe when Sid was in the ring. Uh, but yeah, the main event was uh, uh, absolutely stellar. Uh, a great match. Maybe not quite on par with their uh, 92 SummerSlam match, but uh, still very good. Yeah, um, a weird show in that it was very short. It was about an hour and forty minutes, I think, which I think even by in your house standards is is is, is cutting it. Um, the opening, everything part of the main event was short enough to the point where it couldn't be good, but equally short enough to the point where nothing ever really got a chance to be that horrendous, and it went by quite quickly. Um, it didn't achieve a lot, but the main event was excellent. All in all, one of the better WF shows this year, in the sense that 
they cleared a lot of stuff early on and then gave Brett and Bulldog enough time to go up there and have a, a really good main event. We'll, we will break down the show as we get to it. We open with a video package saying it might as well be season's beatings in the Hart family. Santa is giving out Christmas gifts along with the smoking guns. Yes, that's what being WF Tag Team Champions gets you. And no, they did not appear at any point on this show. We cut to a wide angle when 123Kid and Sid Vicious walk out. And illuminated away from the ring is the hog pen that we use later in the show. Yes, they've literally taken out a bunch of very valuable floor seats uh, and replaced them with a pig pen. Uh, And there are actual real pigs already in the pen. We open up with Sid and the kid, the one, two, three kid, and Sid with Ted DiBiase versus Razor Ramon and Marty Giannetti. We see Goldust sat in the crowd on the R way when Razor and Giannetti walk out. Goldust has some kind of golden sofa to sit on. Giannetti gets it in Enziguri on the kid for two. Giannetti blocks the rocker dropper before leveling the kid with a right, then an atomic drop. Razor gets the tag for a big crowd pop. Razor and the kid exchange punches. Razor slaps him. Sid gets a blind tag and levels Razor for some big boos. The kid and Sid crowd Razor in their corner, both taking the opportunity to get some shots in. Razor gets fired off the ropes and he and Sid both hit the back going for a clothesline. The kid charges at Ginetti but runs into some nice, uh, a nice scoop slam. Ginetti then hits a neck breaker from the second rope. Todd Pettengill joins Goldust. Goldust asks Todd if he's here for an affair. He asks Pettengill to give Razor a golden envelope. Very weird segment. Janetti flies off the top. Sid catches him into a slam for a two. Sid then goes after Razor, but Janetti nearly rolls him off off the distraction. Kid hits a splash from the top for a two. Kid drop kicks Marty. Then Sid hits a clothesline that flips Marty inside out. Marty's in a lot of trouble here. Finally, the kid charges Marty Janetti in the corner, who moves. He gets a hot tag to Razor. Razor hits full away slam on the kid, then sets Razor for a, sets for a Razor's edge, which Sid uh, on Sid, which the crowd go nuts for. Sid counters into a back body drop. Razor hits a bulldog from the second rope on Sid, and that's enough for the win. After the match, Razor sets Kid for the Razor's edge, but Sid pulls him off, and the heels hightail it up the aisle way. Craig, what do you think of this? I thought this was a perfectly acceptable opening match. Uh, I particularly liked the the moments when the one two three kid and Marty Janetti were in. I I, I thought those were uh, were some excellent uh, moments here. Uh, I, I mean, it's very sort of lower lower card stuff, but no, it was good. Uh, I, I think the idea of Marty and the one two three kid working a lot together would probably benefit the one two three kid with uh, Marty's experience in the ring. Uh, I thought the stuff with Razor was pretty good. Uh, I'm, I'm just not a fan of Sid, so I didn't really enjoy much of his participation. I find it sort of slowed things down a little bit, but as openers go, I thought it was good. Uh, and it sort of keeps that program with uh, the one two three kid and Razor going, which means that at least one two three kid's got something to do. Chris, yeah, I, I enjoyed this match as well. I've, on paper, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, I thought Janetti got a good reaction from the crowd, which was a positive thing for uh, my sort of re- reaction to how the match played out. I thought he played his role as sort of the babyface in peril really well. And equally, I thought the one-two-three kid was in his sort of cowardly heel role in the way he goaded a razor and whatnot throughout the match and avoiding the razor's edge at the end i thought he played his sort of cowardly heel role very well and it this match was what around 11 12 minutes long it didn't feel that long at all i thought this was pretty good yeah um you know to a point a, a paint by numbers wwf tag team match but you know a lot of them are like that both good and bad um 
four guys that the crowd at least recognise, and I think to a point they're invested in them to one degree or another, even uh, even Ginetti and Sid. Um, the action was good, you know, they built up you know, heat on the heels and you know for the the the, the hot babyface tag. Um, and Craig, I was a little bit surprised because I just assumed that someone was going to pin Marty Ginetti, so I was somewhat surprised that that Razor picked up the win, but pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I'd agree with that. When you looked at the match on paper, it was quite obvious that it was going to be Marty taking the pin, but I guess it sort of keeps us on our on our toes. And to sort of reiterate a point Chris made, the, the heel turn for the one, two, three kids made them uh, far, far, far more interesting. I know that's something we've hit on in uh, in previous podcasts as well, but it really is light or day between how bland he was at the end of his sort of baby face run and uh, how interesting uh, the the fans are, and particularly us, are in his character. Craig, would you have turned the kid over turning Razor? Uh, it, 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 when they were both baby faces, you turn one of them, you know, as much as the kid improves, wouldn't Razor improve more? Probably, but uh, Razor would have been a much bigger loss to the, the baby face side of things, and it's, it's, it's not as sort of loaded as uh, you'd expect, and, and I think... I think the one, two, three kid was was much staler, and I, I, th- I think there's an element of staleness in uh, in Razor Ramon's character, but not quite at the the dearth of interest that the one, two, three kid was at. Chris, same question. Yeah, I could see turning Razor heel rather than the kid. I think if you'd with the title now on Brett, a heel Razor versus Brett would be a match that you could have somewhere down the line with these more regular pay per views they have now, but. Again, as Craig said, I think uh, the kid's less of a loss to the baby face side of things. And he's done quite well in his role so far for me. So although it's a work in progress, I think maybe it's not the outright correct decision, but I don't necessarily think it's a bad one. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of think in a in a parallel universe, the main event of tonight's show is is a babyface Bret Hart against a heel Razor Ramon. Um, I, I perhaps phrased my question a minute ago incorrectly when I said Razor would have improved more. I think, um, I don't know if that's the case. I just think Razor as a main event heel would be worth a lot more than the one, two, three kid would be as a mid card heel. Um, but no, I, I would agree with the wider sentiment that you turn the kid, you make him more valuable, um, in that they don't really have enough convincing heels where he can play off someone as a, quite a, cookie cutter baby face I think at least this way you've got a bit more dimension to him um, anyway uh, Jerry Lawler gets in the ring he's got a gift for someone and he's got a special guest it's double J Jeff Jarrett Craig um, thoughts on this it's quite remarkable how many chances uh, Jeff Jarrett gets because we discussed previously that he, how many times can you burn your bridges but he just keeps on getting back. Uh, I, I suspect it's more to do with uh, the influence of his father than any deemed in-ring talent. But, yep, he's got some bounce-back ability, has Double J. Certainly does. Laura says Jarrett has been preparing for his world tour. And the gift he has is a gold CD celebrating half a million copies sold of the Ain't I Great album. <laughs> Jarrett says he single-handedly took Raw to places it has never been before, which... Isn't entirely untrue given that him and Undertaker was one of the highest raw, rated raw segments of the year. Uh, Jarrett then says he is, quote, the very first participant in the 1996 Royal Rumble. Laura invites Jarrett onto commentary for the night, it seems. Uh, Chris, what do you think of this segment? 
I mean, it was a pretty good way to introduce Jarrett, and again, it's uh, rather than just airing a vignette hyping the Royal Rumble next month, to have someone on the pay-per-view before come out and declare their entrant, and it be someone who's they're building up as not a massive return, but a fairly notable return to the roster. So to have him come back and announce his intention to enter the Royal Rumble is a good way to promote the pay-per-view. If anything, that's what I would take away from it, rather than any sort of impact that uh, Double J is going to have in the coming months. Yeah, um... Uh, well, yeah, he's going to be involved in something quite big in the next 15 minutes, so we'll we'll come to that in a sec. But I thought as a, this is the kind of thing that should be safe for a pay per view in that Jarrett's not a big enough name to, to move any numbers. You know, he promoted his debut on Raw, I don't think, or his, his, his reintroduction rather. Um, so you bring him back in. Uh, it's a nice little short angle. It previews the Raw Rumble as well, which is another positive. And as we'll come to in a second, he, he ends up being involved in quite a big angle because he stays out there for commentary. Dean Douglas is out next. He's struggling with a very legitimate back injury, which he's also selling. Douglas says he's been sidelined, claiming his back is at 65% of what it should be. Douglas introduces his, quote, graduate student, Buddy Landell, who is a nature boy, Ric Flair knockoff, and they're even using Flair's old WWF music. So it's Buddy Landell uh, with Dean Douglas versus Ahmed Johnson. Landell tries some chops. Johnson hits a spine buster from the top for hitting a tiger bomb for the quick three in probably the shortest match review I've ever done. Chris? Uh, this went way over my head. I didn't really understand why there was this Ric Flair knockoff on the screen. Like, uh, they're just sort of flying some shots over to WCW, I guess. But, I mean, the match was, there's nothing worth commenting on. Um, and it, it just went way over my head. And it was kind of like, well, you could probably just done without that being on the show, really. Like, I didn't, I didn't gain anything from it. I didn't find it amusing. Just nothing in it for me at all. Craig, any any info on the Buddy Landell thing? I, I'm kind of drawing blanks. Uh, it, no, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to make sense. It does have that sort of feel of a of an end joke, but. And that's what I thought it was. But then, previously, when there's those end jokes with the WWF that goes over everyone's head, Vince at least explains it. There was no explanation given for this. And it just, it seemed really bizarre because, as we discussed at the start, we're, we're, we're talking about how sort of light the WWF are and how they're trying to get, get different guys to come, come in for the rumble. And then you've got this guy, I'm not saying that Buddy Landell's a main eventer, but he's, he's, he's a, a decent enough solid sort of worker that you could probably do something with if you wanted to. And they, Bring him in and squash him in 45 seconds. It's just bizarre. Utterly, utterly bizarre. Yeah. Well, and any more to that. After the match, Johnson hits Douglas with his paddle. Lawler reluctantly interviews Johnson uh, after the match. Lawler wants the camera to get his good side. He then asks Jarrett if he was impressed by Johnson, who says he wasn't. Lawler goes Johnson one too many times. Johnson calls Jarrett an achy, breaky, heart wannabe. Johnson turns his back and Jarrett nails him with a, the frame CD. Jarrett then rounds Johnson's head into the chair, which Laura is holding, for hitting him across the back and on the head with it. He then rounds Johnson into the steel chair, steps. Jarrett keeps attacking Johnson, who preposterously just starts no-selling it. Jarrett legs it up the aisle way and they brawl into the back. Um, Craig, I, I believe there was a, uh, what, well, a missed time. It might be non-existent. Kind of, there, there was meant to be people running out from the back to break these up. Uh, it doesn't appear like they got there in time. 
Uh, but I don't know that the best way out of that, if you're Ahmed Johnson, is just to randomly pop up after you've taken about six quite brutal-looking shots, certainly by WWF standards at the moment, and then start fighting as if nothing happened. Yeah, uh, this was just a, such a rubbish, rubbish segment. Uh, I, I appreciate that the WWF clearly expect us to care a little bit more about both guys, but you're right, the, the idea of... Uh, Ahmed getting battered over the head a few times with a gold record and then just popping straight back up and chasing someone down the aisle just looks rubbish. And and Chris, I I, I think had it of I say gone to plan because I don't know that if, if the plan was a pull apart, I don't know that was a good idea because Jarrett was way on top. But had they have just left Johnson laying there by the ring steps, I think this would have been a very effective segment. It would have been much better if, as you say, if it had left him laying there and he'd have made his escape sort of in a more arrogant way you'd have got a lot more out of the segment a lot more it would have done a lot more for uh, Jarrett on his return and probably done a lot more for Ahmed Johnson who who sort of didn't come off looking too well I know it didn't go to plan but generally this was a detriment to both guys rather than doing anything for the both of them and Craig as well, uh, uh, I won't say a return to a more violent style, that would be presuming too many things about what we might see in the coming months, um, but a, a jarringly weapon-based segment for a company that about 18 months ago live on Monday Night Raw had Duke Drozzi go to hit Jerry Lawler with a garbage can and then pan to a wide-angle shot because they didn't want to show it. Um, this is quite the turn. It's undoubtedly edgier, certainly. Uh be interesting to see uh if this is just the start of a of a longer journey. But yeah, it's uh, it's a very noticeable uh change in direction from the WWE. Pettengill is backstage with Razor Ramon. Uh he he gives him the letter uh from Goldust. It looks like a poem of sorts when kind of we, we, we briefly see it. Razor starts reading it, looks confused, screws up the paper and throws it away. Uh Craig, your quick thoughts on, on this Goldust stuff? It's um yeah, they're basically implying he's he's gay. Um there's there's a line from Razor saying uh, on Raw, uh, I'd have to dig it out, basically, you know, I don't care what you're into, but I'm not into that. Um it's different. If we're talking about them being edgier from a weapons and violence based standpoint, this is edgier in a whole different direction. Um I, 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 the jury's out on whether it'll work, but I'm at least, Craig, I'm more intrigued by Goldust than I was when he was being a bit fat wrestling Marty Gennetti a couple of months ago. <laughs> uh, yes, I'd certainly agree with that. Uh, and uh, uh, again, as you say, it is edgier. I can only assume, though, that the WWF are going to probably be quite offensive with this and, and get it wildly wrong or don't be brave enough in it comes across being quite flat and, and nothing. I think those are the sort of only two possible outcomes from this one for me. Yeah, there is a very fine zone right in the middle of what you said there, which is them getting it right. And I think a lot of past history tells us they will fall either to the right or to the left. Um, but yeah, again, it's... They're, I don't know whether, you know, it's not like this is a dramatic change of direction. This doesn't feel that out of keeping with the Goldust character, but they've changed direction somewhat, and I think it's, it, I'm more interested in Goldust now than I was before. Uh, anyway, uh, Hillbilly Jim is introduced as the special guest referee for the Hogpen match. The Hogpen, the Hogpen is about the same size as a wrestling ring. Uh, it's probably, uh, probably about, 
20, 20 feet up the R-way between the stage and the ring. Uh, it's about the same size. Uh, it's basically, you know, a kind of a fence about the same size as height as, uh, wrestling ropes on the floor. And then it's just covered in slop, uh, with about half a dozen hogs inside of it, surrounded by a wooden fence. Hunter Hearst Halsey looks appalled, revolted even. Uh, the match isn't starting in the pen itself, it seems. And they didn't bother to explain the rules of this until about 75% of the way through, but essentially the rules are very simple. You start in the ring, and the first person to put their opponent into the hog pen wins the match. It's Hunter Hess Halsey versus Henry O. Goldwyn with Hillbilly Jim as special guest referee in a hog pen match. Goldwyn ends up slopping WF announcer and some people in the crowd as Helmsley dies out of the way. Goldwyn grabs some slop and rubs it in Hunter's face, which pisses him off. Hunter hits a neck breaker before hitting a nice high knee. The hogs seem to have fallen asleep. Helmsley picks up Hunter and we get, uh, we get near the hog pen. Hunter whips Goldwyn into the fencing, sets up for the pedigree, but Goldwyn backdrops him onto the fence. Uh, looks like the win in the objectives, yeah. They've got the rules in my notes here. Uh, Hunter drops an elbow from the fence and crawls back into the ring. We get back in the ring, Goldwyn hits a lovely reverse face buster. The action slowly edges towards the pen with Goldwyn on offense. He goes for a reverse DDT but Hunter slides out and Goldwyn hits the concrete hard. Hunter then gets slammed into the hog pen. Goldwyn goes for a reverse DDT called the slop drop and hits it. Goldwyn charges at Hunter who flips him over the fence into the hog pen. Hunter starts, uh, wins the match. Hunter starts shoving Hillbilly Jim, who shoves him into Goldwyn, who body drops him right into the slop. The pigs, uh, right on cue, are up and running around. Hunter gets a body slam for his troubles and then slips around in the slop for good measure. Craig? Oh, uh, this was, I, I, I really disliked this match. Uh, I think, I think the Henry Godwin character's just plain stupid and looking increasingly dated even though it's only a few months old and the the Triple H character is a sort of weak version of the sort of unwealthy character that Million Dollar Man did very well during the 80s so straight off the bat I'm very uninterested in these two guys give them a cookie gimmick don't explain why uh, I've uh, Hillbilly Jim is a special guest referee for absolutely no reason and it's very difficult to expect anything other than utter nonsense in this match. Chris? Um, well, on paper, when you look at the the match as an Arkansas hog pen match, and as Craig says, both guys you're not particularly invested in, I was expecting something terrible, but it was about 10 minutes long, and it didn't feel like a chore to sit through. I'm not saying I really enjoyed it. It just was. It was just... It felt a bit, it felt fine, like it, it had a lot of silly in it, but the action was okay. Uh, Hunter bumped about pretty viciously, he did a few uh, corner flips, and when he got whipped into the uh, gate around the hog pen, that looked pretty brutal, and he cut his back open quite badly. I didn't think the action was so bad, I didn't particularly enjoy this match, it just over-delivered, but probably because my expectations were so low, but I thought this was okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I've come to this point a few points, uh, a few times before on the show in saying that if, you know, there are some matches where even though the gimmick seems really shit, if the alternative is just a bog standard singles match, I'd probably rather have the gimmick. I th- Chris, I think you were on the show and we did the Dallas Page, uh, Dave Sullivan arm wrestling match. I think you were on that one. Um, and we were saying about, or well, maybe you weren't, we were saying about yeah. how, um, 
they did arm wrestling match. It wasn't particularly good. I remember saying, look, you know, the alternative is these two wrestling. If I had the choice, I'd rather have them in the arm wrestling match because at least it'd be shorter. And as we found out the following month at uh, Bash at the Beach, um, Dallas Page against Dave Solomon was not a good wrestling match. In a similar kind of way, I don't know that there's a lot of interest in Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus Henry O'Goldwyn. But I think to your average view, and I think to a lot of people, you say, oh, it's a hog pen match. I'm a bit more intrigued. Um, and that's fine, but you know, that, that then relies on the gimmick to deliver. It, it, it just about did. I think this was slightly better than what their in-ring match would have been. Um, the right guy went over, but we had a fun spot after the match where he got his comeuppance, if you like, getting put in the hog pen and, and, you know, getting thrown around and all of that. Um, the pigs were brilliant in their role. Um, they were asleep during the middle of the match um, and then just as the match ends they were up and around. I, I don't know what happened but they they, they, were, they hit their cue if nobody else did. Um, and yeah, it was... Craig, can we call it a bit of fun? Craig, would it have been better than, that, than these two having a match? Yes. That, I, I, that, that's 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 my overriding point, I guess. I guess. Uh, but but my, my problem isn't with the the gimmick match. It's the fact that it just got no introduction. There was no sort of. Uh, I, I I mean I, I I guess you can't sort of describe it as one of the best uh, a match from wrestling history and like that. But I didn't know how you won it. Like because it started in the ring and you've got a hog pen. With, with some pigs, uh, like 50 yards away from the ring, and you're like, well, why? What, what, what's the point <laughs> in this? But we didn't know. We didn't know until halfway through the match, and they're like, oh, guys, we meant to tell you, this is how you win this match. It's just, that's what just made it so rubbish and throwaway feeling. Well, well at least it's not like the, the Rest in Peace match a couple of years ago where they just never explained it. No, it, it, it's fractionally better, but. I remember us being particularly scathing about that. So, yeah, we can be fractionally less scathing about this match. But, I mean, still, come on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it was a 4 out of 10 when it could have been a 3 out of 10, I guess. As I say, like a lot of the stuff earlier on this show, I felt it could have been worse, and it went by quite quickly. Uh, we move on to Owen Hart with Jim Cornette against Diesel. Uh, Diesel versus Owen seems like a massive size mismatch. Diesel comes out of the blocks hard, hitting a sidewalk slam. Owen starts unloading on Diesel on the second rope, but Diesel just shoves him off and throws him over the top rope to the outside. Owen fires him off the ropes and hits a spinning heel kick, then hits a high angle drop kick from the top. Owen, hits a, Owen sets for some sort of leg drop, but Diesel fires him into the turnbuckle post and does snake eyes. Diesel hits a big boot, then shouts, This is for you, Sean, while hitting a jackknife. Diesel puts one foot on Owen to pin him, but decides against it too. Sets up for the jackknife again. This time shoves the referee. Uh, the referee awards a DQ, so Owen wins the match, but Diesel hits another powerbomb on Owen for good measure. Chris? Uh, the match itself was effectively a, a glorified squash. Although in the uh, short while that Diesel was on the back foot, I, th- I did think he sold quite well when Owen was working the uh, the leg. But yeah, generally it was a very short match. But it was more about furthering this new sort of tweener Diesel character that we've seen since he's lost the title. And it, I, I think he's doing really well. I, I, like it's the most I've been interested in Diesel all year, the whole year. Um, there's a great baby face moment with him shouting, this is for you, Sean, as you said. And then immediately after gets himself DQ'd with being a bit too overly aggressive. And it's, it's intriguing and it's the best Diesel's looked all year. And it's just, why couldn't have you booked him like this when he had the title? It's, it's, it's just frustrating. But 
generally, uh, the match itself had very little noteworthy, uh, but it did a good job of furthering this new Diesel character. Greg? Yeah, it's difficult to really add add much more to it. My my thoughts on it were definitely the not nothing much match, but it served the storyline purpose. If anything, it'd have been better for it not to have been uh, own heart wasted in this role. Uh, but yeah, it it, it serves the storyline purpose. At least he's on the show. There is that, I suppose. Uh, I I I mean, he's a guy that. Uh, could be used much better, but I appreciate that's something for definitely later on in the show. But yeah, uh, Diesel is more interesting. Uh, so that's, that sort of bodes well, going in, uh, bodes well, sorry, going into 1996. Um, Craig, one of the things we, well, we, we, we did Diesel for an hour, I can't remember if we discussed it or not, but one of the things we kind of asked ourselves at points this year is of the kind of heels coming into 95 that Diesel could have faced, um, Yokozuna, uh, Bob Backlund, Owen Hart, uh, whether those matchups would have been any good. Now, we know Diesel and Backlund wasn't any good because they tried that and they, they gave up on it. Uh, we saw a brief interaction between Diesel and Yokozuna on Raw, which, while only lasting about 15 seconds, was actually way more interesting than I ever would have given it credit for. Uh, Yokozuna was moving you know, about as quickly as Yokozuna can, kind of bumping with Diesel. I thought it worked quite well. Um, would was there anything you saw here that suggested Diesel versus Owen Hart could have been a main event matchup program three months ago? Aye, I, I think I think there was there was some snippets that that sort of made it look like the pair of them could have quite a good good battle. Actually, I I was quite sort of surprised more than anything to see sort of Owen knock Diesel off his feet for a start. So I know I, th- I think Owen would. Uh, It'd be a, it'd be a different sort of foil to the to the type that the WWF uh, gave Diesel throughout his title run, the sort of lumbering big men. It, I mean, if he's going to be able to get a match with anyone, and he can't get a match from Owen Hart, then you know you're probably struggling. But there, there, there was enough uh, glimpses to to suggest that maybe they did miss something by not putting them together when Diesel had the title. Chris. Yeah, I'd agree, and like considering some of the opponents he had, I haven't been on too many WWF shows, but listening to the uh, podcast, you can tell like some of the pairings he's had with Seared and Mabel, the matches have just been awful. So, it like you're definitely going to get a better match out of it. So why not do it? Like it's, it's like it's pro wrestling, you control it, but and it eventually headed into Survivor Series could have potentially added more fuel to the fire in Diesel Brett in that it adds the storyline dynamic that even Owen's getting a title shot before it gets around to Brett again and you've got that sort of aspect that Brett can be frustrated about in the build and things like that. I don't see why they couldn't have pulled the trigger on this as a actual title match a few months ago as you say I think it would have been a perfectly uh, acceptable pairing and it would probably have been a lot better than what we ended ended up with throughout the year yeah I, I don't know that you would have got three months out of Diesel and Owen Hart and as I, I kind of put in my notes there was you know visibly it wasn't great uh, Owen the heel who's you know over a foot shorter um, but as a one-off match I feel like you could have got away with that and I think it would have been a lot better than what they did um, you know but we, we are where we are uh, we get a promo from the million dollar man he comes out while Savio Vega is handing out presents with Santa Ted says Savio has a price and invites him into the ring and his fat dummy friend Savio accuses the million dollar man of trying to destroy the magic of Santa Claus but he does believe in Santa Santa then hits Vega with his sack 
lays him out at the clothesline. DiBiase has bought Santa Claus. Vega chases Santa up the R way and attacks him. Vega gets the wig off of Santa, but it's not immediately clear who it is. They do introduce him on Raw, um, but but by the by, uh, Chris, your your standard hokey WWF Christmas fodder, I would call this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but as far as fodder goes, I thought this was a uh, maybe because it's that time of year and everyone's in the Christmas spirit but I didn't mind this segment I thought it was quite amusing um, that the idea that even Santa can be bought I, I thought this as far as those kind of throwaway fodder segments go I thought this was fine great it was uh, yeah it was harmless enough and it's Christmas there didn't need to be some sort of cookie Christmas thing and it, I, I did find it quite amusing that after million dollar man saying everybody's got a price for the million dollar man that indeed Santa does have a price we get a video package uh, looking at Mabel and we move on to King Mabel with Sir Mo versus The Undertaker with Paul Bearer in a casket match Tank hits Mabel with a series of brights in the corner before hitting a running splash. Mabel hits a side slam, but Undertaker sits up. Mabel hits a clothesline, but Undertaker sits up. Mabel hits a body slam, and Undertaker cannot sit up this time. Mabel goes to the second rope, but Taker sits up, so he goes for a splash. Taker tries to take Mabel off of his feet, but Mo grabs his leg, and Mabel hits a belly-to-belly suplex off of the distraction before dropping a leg. Undertaker tries to sit up, but cannot, and eats a splash. The crowd start a large rest-in-peace chant. Undertaker gets dumped into the casket, but Mabel and Moe don't seem to have realised he needs to close the lid. By the time they do, it's too late. Taker goes for a clothesline spot against, um, again, flooring Mabel with a flying one. He then sets up and hits a fairly decent choke slam. Taker then big boots Mabel into the casket. Moe jumps in the ring and starts attacking him. Taker choke slams Moe, puts him in the casket too, stands into the casket, grabs the gold chain, which was the urn before it was smelted down, off of Moe, closes the casket, the crowd pop big, and Undertaker wins the match. Undertaker hands the chain to Paul Bearer, then signals to the crowd that he wants the WWF Championship. Craig? Um, I think we we know that this uh, is the end of the Mabel experiment, so there's the sort of silver lining for having to sit through this. This was pretty poor. Uh, Mabel's just rubbish, uh, and Undertaker's nothing like good enough to be able to carry him to a good match. Mercifully, it was quite short. It ends the Mabel thing, and by the looks of things, Undertaker's going to be moving on to bigger and better things, so the end justifies the means. Chris? Yeah, as Craig said, it was it was crap, basically. There was nothing action-wise of note here. One thing that did annoy me, if Undertaker's moving on to challenge for the WWF title, and as Craig says, this is the end of sort of Mabel's experiment and Mabel's run, then the booking of having Mabel and Moe win the match but not really understand that they have to shut the coffin lid the casket lid is frustrating to me because that doesn't help the Undertaker and there's no need to help those two because you're not running forward with them anymore and it's a bit stupid because they basically had that match won inside four minutes and just like whether it's arrogance or not understanding the rules they fail to shut the lid and that sort of undermines the Undertaker having such a convincing six minute victory for that 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 really was a massive negative on this for me and the match itself wasn't great so i wasn't a fan of this one at all uh yeah i, I know what you mean chris i, I just think your your 
I don't get the sense your average viewer is probably going to be all that bothered by the fact that Undertaker was in the casket and they didn't try and win. It's they've done it before. We've had Sid powerbombing Diesel, then you know standing around the ring for 15 seconds to pose before he goes to the pin, which is obviously you know which is a way of them having Sid be able to do his finish on Diesel, but not having him kick out. Um, it looks a bit stupid. It was, I guess, it was the you know. The, the build to the hope spot was, you know, we'll we'll try and make Undertaker look in danger, and then you know, he'll he'll fight out of it. I'll I'll let them off it. I, I think I, I don't think anyone's that bothered. Uh, as for the match, yeah, I mean it, it's kind of one of those things. Like it's, it's not for the first time this year. I've kind of gone with Mabel. I honestly thought it'd be worse. I think given given what the resources they had, I think they laid out a fairly solid match. You know, Mabel tries to chop Undertaker down at the start, gets cut off, Mo gets involved, which means Undertaker can do some stuff. Undertaker gets on top, does the limited moves he can to Mabel, then Mo gets in the ring so he can hit his choke slam on him, and he puts him in the thing, and it's the decisive ending to the match. Um, yeah, it's, it's, when I say it could have been worse, that's, that's probably the, the best praise I can give it. Um, but Craig, as you alluded to, uh, the, the end of the, the Mabel experiment, and I, I don't think anyone other than Vincent Mann is really surprised. No, uh, no. I mean, you can sort of understand things when he picks these sort of super muscular guys, uh, but it's just there was nothing. There was never seemed to be anything really redeeming about men on a mission at all, uh, and the, the only thing of, of any interest is just. The, the massive scale of Mabel but I mean that doesn't sort of lend itself to, to stellar matches particularly when you stick him in uh, the ring with people like Diesel etc and, and The Undertaker so no, uh, really not a massive surprise that it's failed uh, maybe the only actual surprise is how little time he really has given it because what well, it's only maybe five or six months but we have covered previously the sort of injuries that he's caused by his clumsy and reckless wrestling in ring style so yeah maybe not massive surprise in the end yeah in a, in a perverse way i'd kind of be intrigued to see what brett or sean could get out of mabel what what kind of match they could construct i mean i you know i'm, I'm not saying that that's that's the answer to anything but i think i'd be morbidly intrigued in a weird kind of way um but yeah no it's um you know they gave him the title match it stunk up the joint. They gave him King of the Ring. It stunk up the joint. Um, I'm sort of surprised because you know, that's the thing. I think they'd given up on Mabel after the, the, the SummerSlam match. I'm sort of surprised they went this way, other than the fact that maybe they just went, well, we need a program for Undertaker. He's he's got some momentum this year, I guess if you want to call it that. Um, but Craig, it's Mabel and Mo is a tag team act. It's the gigantic big guy who can't move a lot but we can put him with a slightly smaller guy who can do most of the heavy lifting he comes in the ring does a few sharp moves and wins the match it, they they've taken a a quite old school old style tag team act and they turned it into the singles act and they picked the wrong guy uh, yeah, quite probably, but I think uh, Vince would have likely just been blown away by by the by Mabel's massive stature. I don't just mean sort of girth; I do mean sort of his uh, his height as well. Uh, but yeah, you, you're right. It, it, working in a tag team 
it was able they were able to sort of cover his flaws, have him come in and do the big finish. But in one on one matches, I mean the, the, when they were in tag matches, he didn't. He wasn't in, in the ring for that long. So to expect Mabel to transition from that to being able to be in a one-on-one match for any sort of length of time just seems strange. Bizarre that they thought it could work, frankly. Chris, any more thoughts on Mabel? No, I mean I haven't seen as much of him as either of you, but it's absolutely no surprise to me, having seen a, a small amount of him, that it didn't work and it having listen back to a lot of the shows from this year, particularly the King of the Ring. It's a surprise that he's still on a pay-per-view in December. Hi, fans. You see a very joyful reunion in the ring, but for some reason, I don't think we're going to see that right here tonight. I'm joined now, ladies and gentlemen, by Jim Cornette, Mr. and Mrs. Davey Boy Smith. This is going to be a classic. Red Hart, you've been jealous of this man since the first day he laid eyes on in 1981. Calgary Stampede Wrestling, he came in, a fresh-faced hotshot kid from England. He stole your thunder, he stole your fans, he stole your father, Stu Hart's respect. When Stu Hart came up and patted him on the back and said, Davey, you're just like a son to me. That stuck a knife in your guts, punk. Then your sister fell in love with him and decided to get married. She used to be thinking that you were her hero, but all of a sudden she had a new hero, Brett. Then he took your Intercontinental title. Tonight, he's going to make it a clean sweep. He's going to give that knife another twist, punk. And Bret Hart, you're going down at the hands of the man you've never beaten, the British Bulldog. Diana here at the holiday season, though, in 1992. You had some mixed emotions. Do you have any mixed emotions right now? Oh, no, none at all. I have complete faith in my husband, Davey, and I believe since he's beat Brett twice already, he'll beat him again tonight. All right, Davey, last-minute thoughts. Brett, I beat you 1992, Wembley Stadium, for the Intercontinental title. Tonight, in your house, I'm going to win the World Wrestling Federation title and put it around the British Bulldogs waist, where it rightfully belongs. Jim Ross uh, takes us back to Wembley Stadium in 1992, with uh, where Bulldog defeated Brett. He's then joined by Cornette, David Boy and his wife. Cornette says that Diana grew up thinking Brett was her hero, but now she's got a new hero. Diana says Bulldog has beaten Brett before and he can win tonight. Craig, nice little effective pre-match segment, this. I, I did like it, and it, w- it was a bit different because when it comes to sort of hyping things, the WWF tend not to go that far back. Like when they were talking about Diesel, they they, they go back as far back as uh, him beating Bob Backlund in '94, which for the WWF seems a long time. So to hark back to uh, an event uh, in 1992, just. It, it made it feel a little bit different and look a bit more special, and uh, the, the family stuff's pretty straightforward and easy, but it's very effective when it comes to uh, the hearts, uh, as we've seen before. And more pertinent when you talk about they're not hyping back very far, and that you think about it, if you want to hype Diesel, you'd probably go back to the Rumble 94 and to Survivor Series 94 if you really wanted to hype him, and they, did, they haven't done that that much. Chris? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel this segment was really good. It's... It, for a uh, main event on and in your house, it's as intriguing as m- most of the main events we've seen, with the exception of maybe Survivor Series. But since it, throughout the whole year, basically, I I, uh, I thought this was a uh, a good way to hype up the match, and it definitely had me more invested in what we're about to see. Craig, who's the better promo, Bulldog or Diana? <laughs> uh, it's close. Uh... Probably Diana just edges it. Chris? Probably Diana. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, it was, it was Bulldog like... wins on the physique, though. <laughs> it depends what you're looking for. 
Different kind of question. <laughs> Move on. Uh, with Let's time, time for the main event. It's Davey Boy Smith with Diana Smith and Jim Cornette versus Bret Hart for the WWF Championship. Bulldog, apparently, according to Lawler, is wearing the same Union Jack tights from 1992. They're the same looking. I just don't know whether Lawler was insinuating they were the same pair. Uh, Bret does a takedown and gets in an armbar on Bulldog. Bulldog flicks out of it on, uh, into one of his own. Cornette's second tennis racket has a Santa Claus cover on it. Brett goes to a crossbody block for a tooth and hits an atomic drop. Ball gains control with a running knee and a tree of woe. He kicks Brett, but then levels Earl Hebner, who's quickly up, suggesting it may have been an accident. There's some sort of commotion in the crowd, with some sort of security official confiscating a sign or two, uh, the opposite the hard camera, really. The crowd start an ECW chant. Brett goes for a crucifix, but Bulldog just drops him. They say on commentary that Undertaker will be facing the winner of this match. Vince then corrects himself and says the WWF champion, obviously after, after what happened uh, a couple of months ago. Cornette then nails Brett with his tennis racket. Bulldog does some shoulder charges and then fires Brett Hart into the turnbuckle. Bulldog locks in a long headlock. Brett gets back into it with an atomic drop before hitting a running Bulldog, then hits a pile driver. Brett hits a leg sweep, then drops an elbow from the second rope. Brett goes for a superplex from the top. Bulldog dumps him off the top, uh, onto the top rope, sending him to the outside. Bulldog picks up Brett, drives him into the ring trap, steps before doing the same into the ring post. Brett is gushing blood at this point, and there is an audible "He's hardcore" chant from people in the floor section. <clears throat> Back in the ring, Bulldog fires him off the turnbuckle for hitting a pile driver. Vince orders the camera to stick to the wide shots. Quote, we do not need any close-ups of what's going on. Bulldog does a diving headbutt to Brett's side, who's laying face down. Bulldog puts Brett in a bow and arrow. Brett escapes and tries to lock in a sharpshooter, which the crowd explode for, but Bulldog wriggles free. Brett fires Bulldog off the ropes. Bulldog nails Brett with a shovel tackle and goes flying across the ring to the outside. Back in the ring, Brett hits a snap German suplex and nearly takes it. We get a double clothesline spot, both down in the ring. Brett then vaults Bulldog to the outside before hitting a crossbody and unloading on him with some rights. Brett climbs to the top, a second rope, throws himself in Bulldog's direction on the floor. Bulldog catches him on the shoulder and hits a lovely running power slam. Power slam. Bulldog pulls up the matting at ringside. Brett blocks the suplex and dumps Bulldog onto the guardrail before clotheslining him off. Brett hits, Brett hits a backbreaker. He slings Bulldog into the corner. Bulldog flips over when he hits it, bounces off the turnbuckle, then lands almost directly on his head and shoulder, which didn't look fun at all. Uh, Brett lands a superplex. Bulldog barely kicks out. Bulldog rolls up Brett. Brett rolls through for a near fall. Brett then hits a, Mar- then hits a Maddish style cradle and gets the three. Chris? This was very, ma- very much a match of two halves for me. Um, the ECW chance within the first few minutes, they were reflective of quite a slow, mundane start. It felt, to a certain extent, like both guys were going through the motions. Uh, there was a lot of chin locks. and It didn't necessarily feel like in, sometimes with title matches, they're building towards a bigger finish. I didn't really get that vibe. I just thought it was at a leisurely pace. It, it, I, didn't, I wasn't too interested. But then the match took a turn. As soon as the action spills to the outside and uh, Brett gets busted open, uh, the match really turns into something wonderful. And it felt like Dave stepped it up with his uh, his aggression. And it felt like uh, there was a real, like the way Brett was selling and whatnot, Brett seemed like he was in a lot of trouble. And it, it looked pretty hopeless for him. And the aggression and the blood, they sort of added together. And there were some really, really nice spots throughout, throughout this period of the match. And it built to a really 
wonderful, it culminated in basically a really wonderful match. The finish was slightly out of nowhere, not necessarily in a good way. It just didn't, it did feel, I'm not going to say rushed because it was quite a long match, but the finish did seem to just suddenly happen. I wasn't expecting it to come quite when it did, but I have to say I really enjoyed this overall. Chris, does Brett need an impact finisher? I, yes, basically, I, I, it, it would certainly help. Um, I think it would be a, a benefit to not only him, but sort of the matches he's capable of putting on if he had something to build to. Although, obviously, the sharpshooter, but is, is, it's perfectly fine, but it depends if you don't want to end every match by submission, then you have to have a, a second way to get out of it. Craig, same question. Probably. Uh, it would also add a, a little bit of variety to, to his matches rather than just waiting for his uh, five or six uh, moves of doom that he does in order to finish matches off. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's difficult to sort of work out what, what it could be though. Uh, but yeah, there the probably should be... Uh, it'd probably be beneficial to him to have uh, another uh, string to his bow. Well, yeah, literally with the bow and arrow. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of him... You know, we, we, we saw the, the, the King of the Ring, uh, victory two years ago where he won three different matches with three different moves. I don't, I think one of them was the sharpshooter, but the other two were. I know, I know in the final he beat, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow with a victory roll. Um, but it's, you know, you, you can't have your number one baby face tapping out all of your heels because you won't have many heels left in six months time. Not that they've got a lot anyway. Um, and you know this is the alternative and I think in a match last month against Diesel it was really effective because it was it played in a lot into you know Diesel's insecurities and his kind of the evolution of his character in that with the Diesel of 1994 have given Brett a chance to get up and so Brett was able to snap him into a quick inside cradle for the win here it just felt like this was a match that needed a decisive clean finish and not that it wasn't decisive but you kind of associate a cradle or a roll up or, or a small package with a yeah, an, an, an unconvincing finish. So I don't know. I agree with Craig. I, I don't know what it would be. Uh, Craig, your your thoughts on this match? It's really quite difficult to to add much that that Chris hadn't touched upon. It, it was a sort of uh, match of two halves. It was, and the finish was bizarre because, as is alluded to, it, it did just seem like the slowness, certainly at the start, was building up to something, and then it was just a pinfall out of nowhere. It just. He sort of came away from this match being impressed by it, particularly the the section after Hart's bloodied, uh, and it becomes a little bit, I guess, it becomes a wee bit more violent, to be honest. Uh, but you're left with a lot of questions as well as enjoying it, like why, why that finish, why why was it so quick? It just yeah, it just seems a little bit strange. But yeah, I've, I've, a very good match, uh, all in all. Uh, as I said right at the start of my review, the. the that and the opening encounter with the two really standout matches in the show for me. I thought this was really, really good um, in terms of it was slow at the start, but long matches are kind of meant to be slow at the start, I think, to a point. I know I probably criticised last month for starting off a bit sluggishly, but as, you, as you'll hear in that review, there were reasons for me saying that, in that it, it should have tied into the storyline more that Diesel was trying to get the match finished early. That was so much the case here, and I, I think they they built through it nicely. I, I, I would have completely agree with the sentiment that Chris made that once... 
Brett started bleeding, and like it was weird because you know he cut himself, but he hit the steps. There's a bit of cover, and then but Davy rams him into the ring step, and then Brett head goes down. He's gushing blood already. It was a it was a very effective visual, and, and we talk about WWF cutting back. The one real benefit of that is that when you do it, it means a lot more. Um, and it was in front of the crowd, you know, as, you know, I'm not saying they all watch ECW, but certain sections of the fan base clearly do in that arena. Um, and so that tied into it as well. And the match got really good, you know. I'm glad Davey's alright when he landed on his head, but now that he is, I can say that actually added a bit to the match, even though it's probably not a great spot for a guy of his size to be doing, flinging himself across the ring, flipping over onto his head and then trying to, you know, correctly land the bump, having cannoned off of the turnbuckle. Um, but the match got really good down the stretch. As I say, the, the, the slight disappointment probably was, and, you know, we can talk about Bullock in a minute, um, the slight disappointment probably was is that Brett didn't win the match more decisively. And it's a weird criticism given all the, you know, odd finishes we've had from both companies this year. Um, but I would have liked to have seen something more decisive. Brett ends the year on a high note and we, we, we transition forward. Craig, uh, I, I, I'll save Chris this question because he probably hasn't seen enough to properly judge this. Where does this match stand amongst the best WWF matches of 1995? It has to be right up there. Definitely right up there. I'd say it's maybe top three, top five sort of, sort of area. It's difficult to think of. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's without doubt Bret Hart's best match. I'm sure we can agree on that, but he has been lumbered with some nonsense throughout the year. But yeah, without doubt, one of the best matches. And I think this show's one of the best shows from the year as well. So all in all, uh, yeah, very good. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll I'll save part of my rationale for for, for Volume 6 when we do our end of year awards, but um, yeah, you're right. I I think, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't undercut Bret Hart, Hakushi, Bret Hart, Jean-Pierre Lafitte in terms of very good Bret Hart matches this year. But in terms of a Bret Hart match had a lot of meaning and had a lot of build, lest we not forget Bret Hart and Jean-Pierre Lafitte were fighting over the fact that Jean-Pierre Lafitte had stolen his jacket. You know, that's there, that happened. Um, and not that Hakushi was much more other than the bit with Bret Hart's severed head, which was just a bit weird. Um, but in terms of meaningful Bret Hart matches, and that, that shrinks the pull right down probably to about three matches matches anyway um this was the best and in terms of best wwf matches of 1995 it's it's probably this or or the ladder match and then you're into exciting matches that didn't really mean all that much you're into brett and jean-pierre lafitte you are for sure michaels did defeat jeff jarrett for the ic title that was a very good match as well but yeah i mean if we're if we're making a composite card of of best WWF match of the year. This probably headlines that show, uh, in part because Sean and Razor was second from the top at SummerSlam. Um, but yeah, I, I think a, a really fun match. Um, Craig, as for Davy Boy, I mean, I, I, I like the heel turn. I mean, they're talking about apparently, you know, potentially turning back babyface or, or the, not maybe, I may be misquoting what I read in the Observer. Maybe more just the speculation from Dave Meltzer that they may now they've now that he's served his purpose as a heel, they may move him back. Um, but I, I, given how thin they are on the heel side, I'd be inclined to leave him there, and I, I hope he doesn't fall the same way in 1996 that Yokozuna and Bob Backlund fell in 1995. I think turning them uh, babyface again would be a massive mistake, as we were. Uh seen uh, at the beginning quite a t- tongue-in-cheek fashion when we were discussing who cut the better promo him or diane uh 
uh, I mean, it just shows that he is not that good a talker, so would benefit greatly from remaining under the tutelage of uh, Jim Cornette. And there doesn't seem to be m- many babyface managers anyway, so you wouldn't want him sort of being on his own because you can't envisage him doing much in the way of uh, much of a meaningful contribution towards the top end of the card if he's not really able to cut a promo, which he's not. So no, I think turning them heel would be a uh, sorry. I think turning them away from being a heel would be a mistake. I'd much rather see him uh, remain working with uh, with Cornet, and he could be quite a credible uh, upper carder. We end the show backstage with Paul Bearer and Undertaker with Tom Bettengill. Diesel walks in on the interview and says it's his title shot next. Diesel puts his hands on Bearer, Undertaker squares up to Diesel, and that's how we go off the air. Uh, Chris, I, I was giddy with excitement for this, like on about four different levels. Like Diesel's finally got an interesting program with a guy that matters. Undertaker's finally got an interesting program with a guy that matters. And the stare-off was a really strong visual. Yeah, this was a brilliant way to end the show. But it just adds more frustration with how Diesel's title reign went. Because we saw that interesting character culminate in an, an enjoyable sort of glorified squash match almost. But certainly him and Owen Hart, as we alluded to earlier, could have had a title match somewhere down the line. And then you look at him and Taker having this stare-off. And again, he's being put in situations that are so superior to how he was treated during his title reign. You just... You feel sorry for the guy, and obviously he's making he's making it work now, and he's making the most of what he's doing now. But it all feels a little bit too late to me. Craig, yeah, it's sort of reasons for sort of hope with the with the meaningful programs. Again, I go back to the to the idea that they might just blow it. But for one, for the first time uh, in 1995, you have got a sort of reason to be slightly optimistic. Yeah. Um, like a lot of things, they may well blow it, but yeah, you're right. I, 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 I'm at least interested on the way in rather than like, you know, kind of hedging my bets on the way in. I'm actually intrigued and I'll be disappointed if they do get it wrong. Uh, Chris, your overall thoughts on this show and a score rating out of 10. I generally enjoyed this show with the exception of the casket match, which I didn't whatsoever. Uh, the Buddy Landell Armour Johnson match is barely worth taking into account and uh, the Arkansas uh, Hogpen match again as I said earlier it exceeded my expectations even because they were pretty terrible so generally from top to bottom obviously the main event was great and the opening to the night was very good as well so I would give this a 7 out of 10 I thought this was one of the better shows I've seen this year Greg uh, for me the, the opening match was great 
the main event was absolutely fantastic. The stuff in the middle you could you could largely miss, but despite that, I'd still I'd still give this. Uh, I was going to say maybe six or seven out of of ten. I'm probably likely uh, maybe move it nearer to six after the discussion, but still uh, one of the better shows of the year. Yeah, I, I, I'll split the difference and say six and a half. Um, the everything before the main event. As I said at the start, like nothing, nothing massively important really happened before the main event. Uh, the Ahmed Johnson Jarrett Angle could have been something excellent, and then Johnson got up. But like their, their intentions were good. Um, there, there were other noteworthy things, but it went by quite quickly. There was nothing offensive. Even the casket match, you know, you know what you're going, you know what you're getting on the way in. It was fine. Um, and the main event brings this show up by two or three points because it was that good. Um, so I'll, I'll give it a six and a half out of ten. We open up Raw on December 18th with the final Raw of the year, at least in the US, where there'd be no episode on Christmas Day, Jeff Jarrett against Fatu. Fatu mocks Jarrett's strut, but the match ended in interference when Armour Johnson came out and attacked Double J. Jarrett legged it and Johnson tended to Fatu, who had sustained a shoulder injury. Gorilla Monsoon reveals that Double J threw his hat into the ring for the Royal Rumble. He's now throwing it out. Jarrett instead will face Ahmed Johnson at the pay-per-view. Goldust says he's watching Razor's every move, and now there's a special bond between the two of them. Razor claims he oozes machismo, while Chico lets ooze it together. You can buy the latest WWF video game for just $69.99, says Doc Hendricks. Brother Landell defeats Bob Holly. Out with Brother Love, Ted DiBiase says the man who attacked Savio Vega last night wasn't Santa Claus, it was Xanta Claus. He's the newest member of the Million Dollar Corporation. He then says 1996 will be the year of the Million Dollar Champion because everyone has a price for the Million Dollar Corporation. Goldust is sat in the R-way for the Intercontinental title match between Razor Ramon and Yokozuna. Razor goes to set off his pyro but instead gets greeted by Goldust's golden confetti. Undertaker comes out during the match. As the lights start pulsing, Yokozuna legs it with a casket present at ringside. Ramon wins by countout. Razor afterwards says Goldust can do his thing, just not with him. He says the content of the letter wasn't for airing on television, and we go off the air with Shawn Michaels' video package backed by a power ballad. But we do get Raw on Christmas Day here in the UK. A half an hour look at the story of the WWF title starting with Diesel's title win over Bob Backlund. At one point, Todd Pettengill on the ration said Diesel did, ha- did his best to conform to the corporate image, never realising it was softening the aggressive edge that propelled him to the top. I'm sure he was completely unaware. Kurt Henning in the studio says it's obvious the suits were in his ear. Vincent Mann says we can very well see a far more aggressive Diesel in 1996. The rest of the show builds up champion Brett, a number one contender undertaker. They also take a look at some of the contenders for the Royal Rumble. An interesting mix of people they perceive to be near the title picture. We get video packages for Razor Ramon, Armour Johnson and Yokozuna. Vince says 1996 will be the most competitive year in the history of the World Wrestling Federation title. The show ends with the Shawn Michaels video package from last week. You know, Monsoon, i got to give it to you. The lobotomy scar, hardly noticeable. The only way I'm not the number one contender. But you know what? Merely a technicality. Because in the Royal Rumble, Big Daddy Cool's going to do what he does best. 
Everybody goes over the top rope. And you know what? That's right. Anaheim, WrestleMania. I get back what's mine. The World Wrestling Federation title. That's right. So we, we come out of the pay-per-view uh, and we'll start with uh, discussing, well, the, the, the Christmas Day edition of Raw. One didn't actually air in the US at least. They aired it about three days later on Thursdays. Um, but because, because they're cancelling their Thursday night viewing, um, they didn't promote it and they haven't been because they don't want to draw away from their Monday night audience. So I don't think many people saw it, but it did air elsewhere. We did get to see it. Um, it was, there was no matches. It was a studio segment. They'd done these things before. I think last year before WrestleMania, they just had Lauder and Vince in a studio previewing things. Um, predominantly looking at Diesel's title run, uh, and building things into 96, looking at the Diesel Brett Undertaker triangle, if you like, and some of the other contenders. Um, Craig, one of the big stories, I, I, I guess, is the bit about Diesel. Let me just pull up this quote, if I've got it, from, from the show. Um, where where are we saying? Yeah, here we go. So Todd Pettengill on the race, narrating a package about um, Diesel's run in the year said, quote, Diesel did his best to conform to the corporate image, never realising it was softening the aggressive edge that propelled him to the top. Now, Craig, me and you did an hour uh, with Kieran last month uh, talking about Diesel. Um, but yeah, quite, um, quite interesting to try and imply that Diesel the character, and no, like, try and imply that Diesel the character didn't know it was affecting his edge, which if makes sense in storyline but it also implies that nobody else saw that in real life it's it's interesting it's total revisionism but it's uh it is very interesting that they're that they're trying to blame it on him being a corporate man i guess it makes sense because it, it allows them to have another go at it and if they can use them differently, it could be more successful. But uh, it, it does seem a little bit like they're they're making things up to to cover for uh, whatever the reasons were for Diesel's failings as champion. Chris, just from a storyline perspective, it makes perfect sense in that it gives the character Diesel a second wind in terms of running with this new character. It gives an explanation for the sudden sort of change of heart, and it gives an explanation for while his title, why his title run didn't quite go to plan. Um, it, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense in that, from a storyline perspective, but as we know in reality, um, as Craig said, it is very re- revisionist and um, doesn't quite fit what actually happened. Yeah, and the fact that if you listen to the promo he cut the... Um, a couple of days later after he won the title that we played on last month's show obviously from from November 94 um it clearly had already started affecting him which I don't know and I know he I know he said in I know he said in the promo on Raw last month that they sat me down after I won the title but it's hard to imagine it would have had such a big impact so early on I I guess I guess there's plausible deniability on their side into how they told the story. Um, Chris, what what do you think of the rest of the show? I I quite liked it. I I think that this is the kind of thing that all right. I don't think you want to do so obtusely that often, but this kind of little extended you know pre-tape setting the scene for the title picture, explaining the stories, previewing things. I think is mighty effective when the rest of the year it's all matches and angles on, on TV. I think this while it was significantly different really stood out. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I'm a massive fan of shows like this uh, when 
regular episodes of Raw, um, you, you're not going to get that. Uh, I, I really enjoy it. Like you say, though, I wouldn't do it too often because it will water it down a bit. But it, I'd rather see a show like this that lays out the sort of the entire title landscape from top to bottom, looks at all the contenders, looks at the the former champion and the current champion, explains sort of their this like how we got to this stage where we are and looking forward to what we have to come from from all the players involved it does a lot for everyone involved more than sort of promos that can be hit or miss or matches or angles and trying to fit all of those in for all the different players having a 20 minute show like this achieves so much more for everyone who was mentioned within the episode then a regular episode of raw you have to imagine wouldn't have been able to do it as well uh, Craig, power balance, retirement talk, what do you think of what they're doing with Shawn Michaels at the moment? I, I guess it's, with him being out injured, it's the, the easiest way to keep him on, uh, on screen and in our attentions. It, it is quite sort of interesting on one level. We touched upon the sort of idea of playing it too real as though he was seriously injured last week but I guess they, they know that he is uh, the the great white hope for uh, for the company so do need to keep him uh, in our minds. Yeah um, you know I think in terms of what could Shawn Michaels have been doing had he been around this month given yeah I mean Shawn probably would have appeared on the pay-per-view I would think um, but given that they had enough going on with the Diesel change of plan with, you know, Brett in the main event with what they're doing on the taker. It didn't harm things to have Sean off screen. It means people miss him more and they're building up the suspense over the future of his career. Um, I don't necessarily love, as I said last month, I don't necessarily love the whole, oh, he might have post uh, post uh, concussion syndrome. That's not the thing you want to be saying on your own TV programming. But the way they've told the story, it's going to mean more when he comes back. Um, and he's a guy that they need to be looking at for 1996, and we'll be discussing that in our end-of-year review. Uh, right, we are going to move on to some quick-fire topics before we finish. With, you know, no, Nothing significant enough to do a long-drawn-out conversation, because we've got a jam in the end-of-year taping at the end of this recording session as well. Uh, we're a bit pressed for time. Um, Craig, we'll start with the story about Ultimate Warrior. Um, there were there were three points in the news, and I'll, I'll, I'll dig up and find them now. Where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Yeah, uh, some misgivings in the locker room about how much he would cost, his attitude, and whether he could pass WWS new stringent drug testing policies. I will add a fourth to that Craig, which would be, would it be worth it? Uh, what do you think? Uh, I, I, I guess it's just the Vince just being really desperate and realizing that there's, there's really only so many names out there uh, that that still have any value, uh, and just I guess the the fact that Warriors build, there's always going to be a, a liking from Vince towards that. I, I don't think it would be worth the money, and I certainly don't think it'd be worth the risk. But it is just a sort of act of desperation on on Vince's part to get get some sort of name value uh, brought in uh, for next month's Rumble. Yeah, a time when money isn't great, when buy rates aren't great, when you're being hammered at all sides. I don't know I'd be putting a lot of my eggs in, in Warriors basket, but you know, as you say, they you know, they are getting, you know, 
chipped at by WCW. Uh, Warrior, because they own the rights to the gimmick, isn't something WCW can recreate. Hey, go back and listen to our stuff on the Renegade. With they tried. Um, they can't bring him in with the name unless because WF own it, so they can't market him that way. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I you know it, it, it's a pop. It's sure it's a pop, but I don't know that I want to be signing him on a big long contract. Um, because I think the law of returns will diminish quite quickly. And the fact that, you know, I, I, I kind of feel we've moved on from Warrior. You know, I kind of feel like that era's been and gone. I, you know, in, in the post-steroid trial era, um, he would be out of place and not in a good way. Um, and for everything else, I, I, I just don't know that it's worth it long term. Um, Chris, down seven. Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, a potential name you're bringing in, for for us doing the uh, UFC show, it certainly caught my attention and really stood out to me, perhaps more than any other name, just because of the recent success. And uh, you'll be able to hear that in the UFC volume for this month uh, with him going all the way in that tournament. And he's obviously, like, that. the, the UFC, for as underground as they are, they do well in terms of pay-per-view buys and things like that. So if he was able to bring, if they were able to get Dan Seven and he was able to bring a small corner of that market across and maybe people were interested in more sort of ultimate fighting and you could promote him as a shoot fighter and I I, I don't know, I'd really like to see it, but in terms of um, how likely it is to happen, I struggle to see that happen. We we know he's going to be moving on to super fights and whatnot with the UFC and it doesn't seem like the UFC or WWF would, like, it doesn't seem like he could do both. Just, I have no reason to, like, no evidence for that, but in my head, him doing both at the same time doesn't really work. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have particular hopes for it, but I'd definitely like to see it. Yeah, to fill in those who don't know, Dan Seven is, you know, doing ultimate fighting, you know, mixed martial arts for UFC, but he does also wrestle. He's also, you know, NWA champion material. Um, so it's not, it's not a, it's not a celebrity in that sense. It's just a guy that happens to have, a wrestler that happens to have notoriety outside of it. Um, but Chris, I don't know that they'd be willing to go far enough to entertain and properly promote what USC is to be able to get Dan Seven over. And I think the only people that really look at Dan Seven as a big attraction know that he's legitimately tough. And when he doesn't win, I think it will just look a bit weird. Um, but Chris, I think there's a bigger point here, which is if I'm UFC and i am got media issues surrounding whether we're legitimate or not, the last thing I want is the guy who just won my ultimate Albert tournament rocking up in the WWF. Oh yeah, well there you go. That, that's what I'm, when I said I sort of couldn't put my finger on why they wouldn't want to have someone do both. That's, that sums it up. Yeah, they're really struggling at the moment, the UFC, in terms of their media coverage. Um, in both that people call it fake and that people say it's way too over the top and too brutal. So, I mean, I guess no public, no publicity is bad publicity, but in the same way, when you're trying to promote yourselves as a legitimate mixed martial arts enterprise, having someone turn up in WWF isn't really what you want to happen. Craig, Terry Funk. Uh, I, I guess it's something something a wee bit different and sort of indicates a sort of change uh, in direction, again, considering how uh, 
when it comes to his recent activities, but it, it's just how much name value does Terry Funk really have in 1995 beyond beyond the core core audience? I appreciate there's not a million guys out there. And more uh, partly, but, if this was WCW, I think it'd be a little bit different. But more partly, in front of an audience that doesn't really know who he is beyond, as you say, the, the, the core guys that already do, and in which case, I don't think it make a difference. No, ex- exactly. Was I mean, he had a fleeting run with the company in the in the 80s, but I mean, he wasn't like a a, a big name guy then. I mean really in terms of WWF someone like King Kong Bundy was a bigger name in the in the 80s and the experiment with him returning didn't work out so I don't see how they'd get any better results from someone like Terry Funk who was lower down on the, the same WWF cards that King Kong Bundy was on in the 80s Chris what about Vader? I, I, I'm, if he's available and as we said I don't know who he is uh, that's the one name that really intrigues me if he's available and healthy, as we spoke about the new CS surgery scheduled, then he would be a massive acquisition for the WWF. He's one of the names that w- probably the biggest name in pro wrestling that would be clearly available to them. That would have an obvious amount to offer them, and you could do a lot with him. And as we've spoken about, and you you've spoken about on the last few months of WWF shows. Uh, they do struggle for, well, they did struggle for top level heels, and he's someone who could, he could be your number one heel for a long time, um, if you manage to bring him in. So, that's definitely a, an exciting prospect. Yeah, I, I think in terms of, you know, they don't have many heels. We're talking about Bret Hart probably passing the, the belt to Shawn Michaels, both as baby faces in 1996. Um, Vader can come in, and while they sort their shit out on the heel side, he could, if he's, if he's, yeah, if, if his shoulder is in decent enough, Nick, he could prop up that end while that while they get their their house in order on the heel side. Um, and as much as I say about Terry Funk, do people know who he is? I think with Vader, even if you don't, someone comes out there of that size and does a moonsault, you sit up and take notice. Um, it's just providing they don't Bam Bam Bigelow in because Bam Bam Bigelow was a similar size and can do a moonsault, and they. Got him in a main event position and then just didn't do anything with him. Yeah. Uh, Craig, one final name to finish off. Jake Roberts. Now, there's someone with name value. Uh, and well-documented problems, but, but name value. I, th- I think he would he would attract back a lot of the fans that have maybe drifted away from the product. Uh, a lot out of curiosity, no doubt, but I, th- I think... I think he would be a big draw. I think out of the names I've listed, uh, in terms of weighing up risk and value, I think Vader's probably the, the one that's going to be the most valuable with the least risk attached to it. But Jake Roberts has got to be right up there in terms of name recognition and uh, probably still able to put together a really good match considering his matches tended to be more about psychology than anything else. And that will wrap up, <clears throat> wrap up this much show even. Uh, I'd like to thank Chris White. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me, Bob. Uh, Chris, tell people where they can find you on Twitter and about your podcast. Yep, you can find me on Twitter at ChrisWhite14. Uh, I do a wrestling podcast out of 20 years ago mode, out of the time machine. It's called Podplex City. You can find that on iTunes and SoundCloud, and that's also on Twitter at Podplex City. So if you're into your modern day stuff, please do check it out. And Craig Wilson? Uh, yep, uh, you can find me writing on the world of wrestling, again with a sort of vintagey slant at ringthedambell.wordpress.com. 
Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, I will keep this wrap up very brief. Six volumes, WWF, uh, WCW 1, ECW 3, USC 4, End of Year Review 5, End of Year Award 6. Plenty of stuff to get into. Uh, Wrestling 20 YRS on Twitter, Facebook.com. Um, email subscriptions are on the website, as everything's on the website. Uh, RSS feed, iTunes, all that stuff. Uh, and that's about it. I have been Bob Bama. This has been the December 1995 WWF edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, goodbye.